0: Mood with Kim G.C. Moody Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Moody. I'm a Canadian tax expert who has over 30 years of experience at a specialist level dealing with Canada-U.S. tax matters for the private client. For those of you who know me, I love the study of leadership. I'm passionate about entrepreneurship and how tax and economic policy impacts Canadian entrepreneurs, executives, and average Canadians. This podcast will discuss topics relating to taxation taxation policy, leadership, economics, and the odd political comment as it relates to the previous topics, all in a lighthearted and playful style. Strap in and come along to the Good day. My name is Kim Moody, and I'm the host for In the Mood with Kim G.C. Moody podcast. And today I want to talk to you about a Canadian tax rule that was introduced into Canada's Income Tax Act in 2023, and it's the so-called residential property flipping tax. Yeah, you heard that right, flipping. <laughs> Apparently, uh, that word is you know statutory now. It's, it's appropriate to use that in a statute. Um, I find that rather embarrassing, but that aside, it was introduced uh, first in the 2019 liberal party election uh, policy platform in 2021. And it was designed apparently to try to help uh, curb, you know, shortages of Canada's housing supply um, and, you know, go after evil residential property, so-called flippers and tax their income at full, income inclusions as opposed to the 50% capital gains uh, inclusion uh, that many investors who dispose of property, such as real estate will ultimately treat such profits as capital gains. So that was kind of the intent. And you know, when I first saw that proposed in the 2021 Liberal Party election policy platform, I kind of rolled my eyes because I thought, this is silly we already have existing provisions in the income tax act to go after people that flip property and try to make profits, you know, on quick turnarounds, quick holds. Um, but to my surprise, they went ahead and did it. Anyhow, actually, I should never be surprised, but they went ahead and did it. And so now we have this rule that to the extent that you hold property, residential property, whether it's a rental property or your own property, Uh, and you dispose of it within 365 days from the date of acquisition, such profits are now automatically deemed to be uh, fully includable in income as effectively business profits and, and not a capital gain. So let's just stop there for a second. And before I get into why this is all silly, let me give you a bit of background. And I think it's important just to understand the context and the background and why this is silly, and why, frankly, this just panders to, you know, a voter base that, ultimately, you know, many people that don't understand tax, which is, I would submit to you as most people in Canada, um, you know, they might look at a rule like this and say, yeah, go after, go after these evil people. You know, they should for sure pay full tax rates. Um, and so let, let's take a step back and, and do a little history lesson here. So prior to January 1st, 1972, I mean, that's a lot of years ago already, that's you know that's uh, 52 years ago, uh, capital gains were not taxable in Canada. Uh, but effective January 1, 1972, any realized capital gain uh, was now included in taxable income, but only at 50% of the capital gain. And so, you know, you can imagine the games that were played prior to January 1st, 1972. The, there are lots of people that took the position that any realized profits on a disposition of property were capital gains and thus not taxable. And, you know, the courts were littered with, with cases like that. And ultimately, one of the things that came out was a common law rule that, uh, to the extent that you had a so-called adventure concern in the nature of trade, which overly simplifi- simplified is to the extent that you, you know, took a concerted effort to make a profit on a disposition of property, that could be considered to be business profits as opposed to capital gains. And you can only imagine that people try to argue that it was not an adventure concern in the nature of trade, and sure enough, the courts are littered with cases about you know, capital gains versus income. And frankly, even today, uh, there's lots of cases about capital gains versus income that are in the courts because to have a capital gain is preferential because it's only half taxable. It's only half includable in income as opposed to business profits are fully includable in income. So the reason why capital gains became taxable in, uh, in the Income Tax Act effective January 1, 1972 Kind of came out of the Royal Commission on Taxation, which was commenced by then Prime Minister John Diefenbaker in 1962, and it was led by the eminent Kenneth Carter. So, you know, this commission was affectionately known as the Carter Commission. And they released their, you know, report on Canada's taxation system and recommendations that capital gains should be fully taxable. Um, famous phrase "a buck is a buck is a buck" uh, came out of that, and effectively meaning that that whether a buck is earned as employment income or investment income, like like interest income or capital gains, it's still a buck, and therefore it should be taxable. Well, that was a highly controversial uh, recommendation that came out of the commission, and ultimately the uh, parliamentarians uh, landed that capital gains should only be half-includable in the income. There was some concern at the time that if you tax capital gains too harshly, that that might stifle investment into Canada's economy, be it domestic or foreign investment. And so they compromised and said, well, let's just make it half-taxable, and so they did. And. And there's been some adjustments to the inclusion rate over the years. Uh, back in the 1980s, it, it rose to two-thirds, the capital gains inclusion rate, and then eventually to three-quarters. And then in the year 2000, it was brought back down in, in stages to the 50% inclusion rate. And we've had that 50% inclusion rate now for 24 years. Notwithstanding, there's been a lot of concern and alarm bells raised over the years that the capital gains inclusion rate would be increased. Even recently, there's been lots of concern about that. But it, today, it still remains at 50%. So with capital gains being taxable, um, you know, there is if you sell your, your principal residence, your house, the concern back in 1972 was, well, hold on a second here. If, if you have a capital gain on, on the disposition of your house, is that going to be taxable? and there is some policy concerns that, yeah, probably shouldn't be taxable. And so they introduced the principal residence exemption, and it's a very generous exception to the taxation of capital gains, because ultimately the exemption is an unlimited amount. As long as you qualify for that exemption, then any ca- any realized capital gain is exempt from taxation. And so, You know, that rule has been around since January 1, 1972. And it, you know, it really hasn't been tinkered with a a whole bunch uh, since that time. There's been a little bit of amendments. Like in 1981, they amended it so that only one principal residence exemption per couple uh, could be claimed. Uh, Because prior to that, you you could double up. You could have, you know, husband claim principal residence exemption on property one and wife on property two. So you could double up, but they changed that rule for uh, spouses uh, and then eventually for common law partners as well later on. And the the Canada Revenue Agency or Revenue Canada, as it was known back then, they adopted an administrative rule, which I always thought was really silly uh, when I first got into tax in the 1980s. Uh, The the administrative rule was that if you're disposing of a property and you're claiming principal residence exemption, then you don't need to report it on your tax return. And so I always thought that was silly because that just simply encourages people to take the position that a disposition of of a residential property is their principal residence and they can get away with it unless somehow uh, they come up on the audit radar. But if you, if you don't report it, then the chances of not being audited are actually pretty high. And so they, they did change that rule finally in 2016, and I thought it was about time. But you know, let me illustrate uh, why I think that was a silly uh, administrative rule. Uh, true story, I, my uncle back in the 1980s, you know bless his heart you know he uh, he was uh, uh, you know newly newly married with three kids well I guess not newly married but he uh, he had three young kids at the time with my aunt and and he thought that he was a brilliant investor because Alberta was certainly depressed back in the early 1980s because of the National Energy Program but in the mid 1980s it was starting to recover And so he started investing in real estate and he thought that the rules for principal residence exemption were that you had to live in the property a minimum of one day, for example. And that's a common mythology, by the way, it's not true. The, the actual test is it has to be ordinarily inhabited, which the courts have laid out kind of a series of common law tests as to what that means. But I'll tell you right now, it's not just one day, but my uncle, um, you know, tried to take advantage of those uh, of his limited knowledge of the principal residence exemption. And over a period of uh, three years, him and his wife and their three young kids bought and sold uh, 11 properties. And uh, it was in that neighborhood, roughly 11, I believe, and made money on each disposition, did not report uh, those dispositions because back then you didn't have to in order to claim the the principal residence exemption and ultimately, uh, you know, did did not pay tax on any of those profits. Now, stand back for a second and think about that. Yes, he did move in for a short period of time, but ultimately his intention of buying those properties was to flip them for money and to uh, claim the principal residence exemption, presumably tax free. In a situation like that, is that a capital gain that he realized? Or was it an adventure or concern in the nature of trade? Well, I'll submit to you with, without much doubt that each of those dispositions yielded business profits as opposed to capital gains. And one of the key criteria in order to have eligibility for the principal residence exemption is that the disposition of property, that property must be considered a capital property. Well, in, in each of the dispositions of those properties, that would not be a capital property because the disposition of a capital property yields capital gains. Whereas the disposition of inventory yields business profits. And clearly in my uh, example here, in, in the example of my uncle, those properties would be considered inventory because of the intention of what he was trying to do, the short uh, period of holds, the number of dispositions, et cetera, et cetera. And so he was not eligible to claim the principal residence exemption in any event. Now, how many of those situations do you think existed in Canada throughout the years have existed in Canada throughout the years? I'll submit to you a lot, but Revenue Canada or the Canada Revenue Agency, or the government of Canada for that matter, was its worst own enemy because they had this crazy administrative rule that did not require the disclosure of the disposition of the property from which they're claiming the principal residence exemption. Again, that changed in 2016. So now the Canada Revenue Agency has all the ammunition and disclosure that it needs assuming people are filing their tax returns correctly, which the new disclosures are pretty obvious that you have to do it. Uh, And so there's really ample opportunity for the CRA to audit dispositions and claims of principal residence exemptions. But fast forward now to 2021, and we have, you know, we're we're getting into uh, housing shortages, uh, increased immigration, you know, increased housing prices and this liberal election policy platform comes in to suggest that we need a flipping tax so as to make it any, so as to make any disposition of property held less than a year to be deemed to be business profits and thus not eligible for capital gains treatment and of course thus not eligible for principal residence exemption. Again, very silly because as hopefully, if you're following along here, and as long as I've explained this okay, you know, you, there's no need for this because the existing Income Tax Act has all the statutory tools, and now the administration of the Income Tax Act being the requirement to disclose the disposition of the property that is eligible for the principal residence exemption, it it's all there. There's no need. You can audit it. But instead, what they want to do is introduce this arbitrary rule uh, of a year hold. And you know why? Well, should, you know some people have argued that well, hey, if you sell it for less, you know, less than a year after you acquire it, clearly you're doing it for business. Well, that's not true. Um, clearly not true. And I'll explain that in a minute more. And obviously, the government thinks that that, that may not be true too because they introduce some exceptions to the rule that I'll discuss, but why an arbitrary rule uh, like that? And it, it really does boggle my mind, but in any event, going to these exceptions, when they introduced the rule effective into law, January 1, 2023, they said, okay, yes, if you dispose of the property, um, during a, you know, any time before 365 days from acquisition, it's going to be fully taxable as income and by the way, if you have a loss, sorry, the losses are not deductible, which I can understand that. Uh, but having said that, they said, unless you have certain life events, and these life events are, you know, I'll just read to you here, the, if you're forced to sell the property within 365 days because of the death of a taxpayer, because one or more persons related uh, to the taxpayer is joining the taxpayer's household, in other words, the properties become too small. Uh, the breakdown of a marriage or common law partnership. Uh, I love this one. A threat to the personal safety of the taxpayer or a related person. And the reason why I, I, I kind of chuckle at that one is because how do you audit that? Like, let's say for example, uh, <laughs> you know, you buy a house and then you shovel your sidewalk uh, in Canada's cold winters you know, you're shoveling the snow. And, um, you know, your neighbor says, Hey, I don't like the way that you've done that. That's, that's ridiculous. And, you know, I'm going to beat you up if you do that next time. And so you go ahead and you sell your house. Well, how do you, how do you actually audit that? Or how do you actually make that claim if it's a, he's, he said, she said kind of situation. So I, I find that a little bit kind of silly for audit, at least anyhow. Um, next one is the taxpayer related person is suffering from a serious illness or disability. Um, or you had to move because of a job or you got fired, uh, or some, uh, or your spouse or common law partner did, uh, you became insolvent or the property uh, was destroyed or expropriated. So that's the list of so-called life events that get you out of this deeming rule to the extent that you sell the property within 365 days. And so I, I, I rather silly in the whole scheme of things, um, but in any event, the rule is there. And for all the reasons I've already explained, I think this is gonna be difficult to, you know, to, to audit and actually to administer. And so let me read to you one other thing that, uh, you know, one of the editors of the Income Tax Act that most tax, tax practitioners use in Canada, his name is David Sherman, he's an eminent uh, tax lawyer and he uh, provides commentary. This is what he wrote uh, about uh, this rule when it f- was first, pr- first proposed. He said, these rules will have a significant psychological and compliance impact. They tell tax preparers not to report dispositions after less than one year as capital gains or claim the principal residence exemption unless a listed exception applies at the risk of civil penalties applying. And you know, so let me put that in plain English. The So this rule deems dispositions of property to be business income if if it's held for less than a year, subject to these life events that I've described. But what if I sell a property 18 months after? Does that automatically make it a capital gain? The short answer is no, because the existing law still applies. As I described early on in this podcast, you still have to look at whether or not you've got a disposition of capital property that realizes a capital gain, or do you have an adventure concern in the nature of trade? So notwithstanding this deeming rule of 365 days or less, now you've got further confusion because people are gonna think that if you sell on the 366th day, which clearly people are gonna do that because this is incentivizing people to sell on the 366th day, uh, they're going to think that that's automatically a capital gain. And that's not true because the existing law, regardless of this new rule, states that any disposition of property that is in the course and adventure concerned on nature of trade will be taxed as business income. So again, this adds unnecessary complexity and, you know, lots of gray areas. Now, I'm recording this podcast on February the 27th 2024 and last week the BC provincial government decided to get in on this action and follow the lead of of the federal government and in in its provincial budget it introduced a residential property flipping rule and it's virtually identical uh, to the uh, federal rule with with an exception Uh, and the exception is that they've introduced a second year So if you dispose of a property within the first year of acquisition, then they impose this high tax, high, high tax rate. Provincially, it's 20%. Uh, and if you dispose of the property between day 366 and day 730, then it's proportionately brought down to zero. So in other words, if you're not subject to this flipping tax, to the extent that you um, uh, dispose of it on the 731st day. The federal rule doesn't include this second year, but the BC province in its infinite wisdom decided to introduce this rule. Now again, does that prohibit the BC government from taxing dispositions of property as business income, like in the course of adventure, concerning the nature of trade, to the extent that you uh, sell a property on the 731st or 732nd day? No, because existing law enables them to do that or, and make that determination. And so, again, very, very silly, very confusing, not necessary. Now, to close off here, I, I'll, I'll just let listeners know, if you've made it this far in the podcast, you'll know my opinion that this is an unnecessary, it's a very political rule, it clearly is designed to try to pander to a voter base that thinks that, that um, flippers are evil, which <laughs> I've never seen any compelling statistics or evidence that state that they are. But, uh, but the, the parliamentary budget officer, which is a neutral body uh, that costs um, you know, proposals and a whole bunch of other good work that they do, uh, released a report on November the 28th, 2022. And if you're keen, go take a look at it. And, but it was wanting to see sorry, that it, it on that report, in that report, it looked at how much tax revenues this measure will raise um, as a result of its introduction federally. And it's an interesting read, and clearly the, uh, the, the PBO in its report, said that people are likely going to go out of their way to avoid this tax. In other words, there'll be some behavioral responses. And I don't disagree. You're going to see people disposing of property in the 366th day, for example, uh, which, you know from an economic and policy uh, perspective, just makes no sense. Uh, but it said that it's expected to raise 66 million dollars over the next five years. You know, stand back and think about that for a second. Um, you know, if you're throwing away $66 million, like for example, you know, there's lots of wasteful spending in the government. That's a lot of money, no question about it. But when you're introducing tax measures to try to raise revenues, that's not a lot of money. And you're going to have behavioral change for $66 million and add confusion and unnecessary complexity into the act uh, and create behavioral Expectations that if you sell it on the 366 day, that it's a capital gain. Yeah, I, I, in my view, this rule needs to go. And uh, with if if there is a government change, um, certainly I'll be even more vocal than I am today that this rule is unnecessary uh, and needs to go. So with that, I hope you learned something, and I I hope you continue to listen to my podcast and. If you do like this, please uh, subscribe if you haven't done so already. Tell your friends about it, and please leave some comments or likes. Uh, I'm always open to comments and want to try and uh, and improve. Uh, So thanks very much, everybody. Bye now. So there you have it. Another episode of In the Mood with Kim G.C. Moody podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing it. I'm always open to feedback. Please reach out to me at... My personal website at kimgcmoody.com. Feel free to sign up to my mailing list for my one-to-one-to-one newsletter where I comment on one comment on taxation, one comment on leadership, and one comment on economic or public policy matters. And feel free to reach out to me on my LinkedIn account as well. Until next time, take care. Bye now.